0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today's reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. It can be found if you're following in the in the Pew Bible. It can be found on page 860. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can produce bad fruit, neither, sorry, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so you'll recognise them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because his teaching was like one who had authority, and not like their scribes. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You guys ready to work? It's the last sermon in the series, and there's a lot to get through, and I just want to jump straight in. So have that Bible open in front of you. I'm going to begin by just tracing a thread that uh, has been Uh, the very forefront of Jesus' mind through this whole sermon that he's been preaching, the one that we've been dwelling on for 20 weeks, a thread uh, about the kingdom of heaven. First week, if you remember, we said this was going to be one of the major themes in the series, and it has been. Uh, Jesus began teaching about it even before this sermon. If you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, um, Matthew tells the story of how jesus began his public ministry his preaching ministry he says from then on jesus began to preach repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near that was his message repent come back to your father in heaven this message to the people of israel a people who, who who throughout the history had wavered in their devotion to god had been the kind of people characterized by um, wandering from God's ways. We've just been carrying on their tradition up till this point today, prone to wander, prone to waver in our sense of devotion and commitment to God. Jesus comes uh, really on the heels of John the Baptist, who had a similar preaching ministry, calling people back to covenant faithfulness. Repent. Turn back to God. Come home. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does he mean? He means that in him, God in human flesh, in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is now on earth. The kingdom of heaven is among you, he'll say elsewhere. In Jesus himself, the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated. He goes on to tell many parables about how that kingdom of heaven is like a seed that grows, starts out small, starts out with an appeal from the king of heaven to his people to come back to the kingdom of heaven. And it grows and grows and continues to grow to the point that we are here at the very ends of the earth in Caroline Springs worshipping Jesus as Messiah, as Lord. The kingdom of heaven has come near For many of us, we grew up believing and being taught that being a Christian was about leaving the earth so that we could get into heaven. But the truth of the Bible is actually that Jesus left heaven and came to earth, that the kingdom of heaven has been brought to us. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. The picture of Revelation 21 at the end of all days is of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth being established here among us. The renewal of all things will happen on this good earth as God restores all things. And it began with Jesus coming into human history, God in human flesh, and his announcement that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. It's among you. It's drawn near. Who is this kingdom for? He tells us in chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This kingdom is for those who are poor, poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to know that I cannot achieve by my own goodness, righteousness and record that which would grant me entry into the kingdom of heaven. I must come to God with hands empty. I must come to God in my bankruptcy and say, I have no hope in myself. The kingdom of heaven belongs not to those who are self-righteous, but to those who depend on God for all of their righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How will those people live? How will these people who have the kingdom of heaven, how will they live in the here and now? He goes on, chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That there is a righteousness characteristic of those who are poor in spirit that exceeds the most righteous, zealous, biblically knowledgeable people of their day. Scribes and Pharisees who are zealous for the kingdom of God, zealous for obedience, zealous for the scriptures. Unless our righteousness exceeds theirs, then the kingdom of heaven is not for us. There is a righteousness, a quality of righteousness that exceeds that of those professionally religious people. And the way, the, the means by which all of us, even those of us who are the most poor in spirit, can exceed that righteousness of those professionally religious people is simply this. Where they were living for external righteousness. Doing the right things, but for the sake of being known and adored. The poor in spirit will do righteous acts from a deep sense of love And worship of God. The motivation is the difference. The acts are actually the same. You you know, as we've gone through this, Jesus talks about who the hypocrites are. He talks about the fact that you can give to the poor and fast and pray and do all of these things simply for their external benefit. To be seen, to be lauded, to be praised that righteousness will not see you into the kingdom of heaven. Only righteousness that exceeds that, that is born out of a heart, heart deep, whole body devotion
2: to God and his kingdom. Only that righteousness leads to the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit, those who who
3: have
1: by right the kingdom of heaven as an inheritance, they will live in whole body, heart, deep, righteous ways, ways that reflect and echo and are in symphony with God's ways, God's will, God's nature, God's love. They are the ones that the kingdom of heaven is for. Where is the kingdom being built? Chapter 6, verse 10 The Lord's Prayer. He says, Your to God the Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. God's kingdom is being built right here. Our prayer is that it will be further established minute by minute, day by day, age by age, that God's kingdom would come in its fullness. We look for the day when it will come finally in final renewal and restoration. But in the meantime, in the midst of the tension that we live in, The light of the kingdom mixed in with the darkness of this world. In the midst of all of that, we continue to pray, your kingdom come here. Don't just whisk me off there to some cloudy paradise, but bring it here. Establish
2: it here. Your kingdom come. How do you enter the kingdom? We saw that last
1: week. Chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened there is a general application there when it comes to prayer and Jesus talks about that in that same passage but the primary thing that Jesus has in mind as he says those words is entry to the kingdom of god He's speaking of salvation. Who will be saved? Who will inherit the kingdom? Who will be able to enter through the gates of the kingdom of God? It is those who simply by faith, recognizing that they have nothing, no key, no strength to push through that gate, to push through that door, no capability on their own, but by faith being poor in spirit, those who come to the Father, the loving,
2: generous Father, and ask, seek, and knock. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of God. It is among us. And
1: Jesus wants each one of us to be those who enter into it to enter into life in the kingdom, eternal life in the kingdom, beginning now and moving on into eternity. And So now as he draws to the end of his sermon, he gives us some specific instructions on entering the kingdom of God. Verse 13 and 14 of our text. Enter through the narrow gate, he says. You who are on a journey to the kingdom of God, to life, abundant life, eternal life. You who have ears to hear the words of the shepherd who seeks to direct you to that kingdom. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, the opposite of life. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. He's instructing us, enter through the narrow gate. There is one gate. The gate. Singular, exclusive. There's only one. Reminiscent of fortifications in jesus day where you would have this broad general public gate but during times of war and conflict that gate would be shut and only a small gate a secret gate known only to the citizens of that fortification of that city that gate would be the only way to enter in and so jesus says You have heard me say there is this small gate. You have heard me say that there is this gate that will always be open to those who ask and seek and knock. There is a gate that exists that you need to move towards. You need to walk towards. It's a difficult road that leads to the narrow gate. There are only a few that find it in contrast to those who want to use that wide, open, easy gate. But those who hear my words and act on them, you are the ones who will find the narrow road. You will enter through the narrow gate. Every single
2: person in this room gets one life to live. We all have one single life to live. None of us knows how long it lasts. All of us walk a road through life. The roads
1: themselves are many and varied depending on your own personal set of circumstances, but every one of us walks that road. Jesus says... Be sure, be certain that you walk the path that he has laid out for you, the path that leads
3: to life.
2: I'm reading this book at the moment. You might have read Jack Kerouac, On the Road. It's a bit of a, a
1: classic um, and it's a non-fiction work, but it was, a, a, sorry, it's a fiction work, but it's kind of autobiographical. If you know anything about Jacques Chirac, he was, it's uh, Jacques Chirac, he was the president of France. Jacques Kerouac, on the other hand, was a very gifted poet and author, part of the kind of beatnik movement in the USA, and, um, and tragically died very young, uh, alcoholic, drug user. But his whole life, and it's sort of, it, illustrated in this book was this quest for meaning just he was so irritated by the superficiality of life the superficiality of consumerism and the american dream and he was had this deep desire to know something more to experience meaning and he searched for it in many different ways some eastern spirituality mostly in drugs alcohol sex fame fame But his life ended early, and it ended tragically. And the the road that he walked, and the road that's sort of illustrated in this book, is a a
2: road of of uh, a road of destruction. Ultimately, of destruction.
3: Every one of us is on the road.
1: And every one of us is on a road that either leads to life or to destruction. Jesus makes it that binary. And he pleads with us, as the only one who has any authority to tell us what to do, he pleads with us, enter through the narrow gate. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find
2: it. Jesus says, astonishingly, John 14, I am the way
1: and the truth and the life. Again, singular, exclusive. In a world that wants to make everyone the way and everyone the truth and everyone the life, Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through
3: me. He is the narrow gate.
2: This was so important to the early Christians who who got this and were willing to walk that difficult
1: road even when it led to an early death. These Christians weren't known as Christians. That was a label given to them by people who
2: Persecuted them. The Christians call themselves what? The way. This was everything for them. The whole movement was called the way. Jesus wants us to know the way.
1: He wants us to know that he is the way. And he wants us to know that the way Is narrow and it's difficult and it's dangerous. Check out verse 15. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Remember those who hear Jesus' words and respond to them, those who find the narrow road, those are the poor in spirit. Those are the weak in the world's eyes. They are sheep. There's a reason they use this metaphor for us as Jesus followers. We are sheep. We are not
2: impressive. We cannot defend ourselves. We're pretty dumb. Can we just own it for a second? And Jesus says, you sheep, you
1: weak ones, you poor in spirit, You ones who have heard my voice, the good shepherd's voice, and responded to it. You are going to have to walk this difficult road, and on that road there are wolves, ravenous wolves. I don't know what other kind of wolves there are. I'm pretty sure all the wolves are ravenous. They're all
2: very interested in eating sheep, right? That's just part of their nature. The road is not only narrow and it's not only difficult, but it's dangerous. There are those
1: in our midst who appear like sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing, who appear like sheep.
2: But they have no business amongst God's flock. They're only there to consume, they're only there to destroy.
1: Now, the problem is they look just like sheep. You don't have in your mind like a wolf in a very badly knit together, like patched up rug from the floor, right? That's not, they're, not, they're not doing a bad job of looking like sheep. They, look, they are sheep by all appearances. They're dressed up just like sheep. They appear like sheep. So how are we meant to be on our guard
2: against wolves that look just like sheep? That's tricky. Jesus tells us how we can tell the wolves from the sheep. Verse 16
1: to 20. Read it with me. You'll recognize them by their fruit, he says. You'll recognize them by their fruit. How do you recognize a wolf when it looks just like a sheep? You recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? It's a rhetorical question. Or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. I did the unthinkable this last a couple of weeks, I did the unthinkable. I went through my entire library and I threw books
2: in the bin. This has never happened before. I think books are precious things that should be preserved at all
1: costs. I think we should have a big book burning out the front of our church and it'll just
2: be kindles. Books are precious. They should be
1: preserved. They should be cared for. They should be handed down through generations. Some of my books are over 100 years old. They're precious. But I threw a bunch of them out. I don't know, maybe 100 or no, more than that, way more than that books out.
2: I needed to make more room on my shelf. But most of the books I threw out were just ones
1: that were written by wolves. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it when I bought the book. I bought the book because this person, this author, this leader, this preacher was impressive,
2: led a big church, was an effective communicator, impressive leader.
3: And yet now those books are
2: being minced up. those books are going to rot in the ground
3: because those authors were wolves
2: in sheep's clothing. And I only know it now because I recognize them by their fruit.
3: The danger for us In
1: recognizing who the wolves are, the danger for us in entertaining, toxic, non-Christian church leaders, the reason we do it is because we are more taken with, pay more attention to gifts rather than fruit. That's what we look for, that's what we're impressed by, the gift, the the, the the gifted leader, the gifted speaker, the gifted minister, the gifted Christian. He's such a good communicator.
3: He's such a good leader. You can be a very gifted person and produce no fruit.
2: What is the fruit that we should be looking for? Not how many downloads someone gets
1: on iTunes. Not how many books they have sold and whether they're on the New York Times bestseller list. None of their gifts, actually, but only their fruit. Galatians chapter 5. Think about this. When you think about the kinds of people you respect, In the church, are you looking for the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? That's the fruit. That's the fruit we want to be looking for. That's the fruit we're testing people by. It seems to me that in our Crazy modern Christian world, the things that we look for in impressive leaders and speakers
2: and influential people are actually the opposite of those things. Where's the gentleness? Where's the patience and the kindness? These are the things that Jesus
1: wants us to look for in leaders. These are the ways that we'll be able to tell
3: the wolves and the sheep.
2: Now, these false leaders, these false sheep, these false believers
1: who do great things, remember, these are the impressive ones normally. They do great things, but they produce no fruit. They will be, Jesus says, unmasked on the last day. Jesus probably has in mind, as he uses this illustration, he probably has in mind a, a fable of Aesop, which is uh, about 500 years old at this point, but where he tells of this story of a wolf that wants to eat sheep and so he dresses up as a sheep and he goes and lives among the sheep and so he has easy access to the sheep. But then one day the shepherd comes and wants to have a little lamb for his dinner and so he kills a sheep that turns out to be a wolf. Jesus probably has this in mind because he knows as the shepherd he will do justice on wolves who dress up as sheep. He will kill them. He will destroy them. And one day they will be unmasked by him and destroyed by him. Verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name?
2: Then I will announce to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Destruction.
3: How do we know this isn't me? How do you know this isn't you?
1: Does it make you tremble a little bit when you hear that passage? Getting to the last day, the day of judgment, and Jesus looking at you and saying, I never knew you. If that doesn't make you tremble just a little bit, you're not hearing him right. But here's why you can be assured and reassured
2: that this is not referring to you. The test is the, the test of fruit. Fruit fruit of the Spirit, and the test is the test of hearing
1: and doing what Jesus has said. Hearing and doing what Jesus has said. For Jesus to be Lord, for you to be able to say to him, Lord, Lord, and for it to mean anything, anything that he will recognize on the last day. For that to be true, there must be a corresponding desire to obey Him. That's what it means for Him to be the Lord. It means He's in charge. He gets to set the agenda for you. You don't pick and choose between things that you like that He said and things that you'd rather leave aside. For Him to be Lord
3: means we surrender to Him.
2: means he sets the agenda to call Jesus Lord Lord and then not obey him
1: is a contradiction in terms that's the kind of person that Jesus says I never knew you but I said Lord Lord I even did great things miracles and you know whatever impressive things in your name Jesus says, you are saying, Lord, Lord, but you weren't obeying me. Those two things don't belong together, and so we don't belong together. He says in Luke chapter 6, this is very explicitly, Luke 6, 46, why do you call
2: me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? You're a living contradiction.
3: I never knew you. The true disciple
1: is, hears and acts, right? Last little bit of our passage, the last little bit of this sermon, verse 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock,
3: Now again there's probably a general
1: application for this passage that has something to do with you know like persevering through the storms of life building your house on a rock and then cancer comes and you stand firm that there is general application there but it's not really what Jesus is referring to explicitly what Jesus is talking about here is judgment day the storm is not cancer the storm is God It's God's wrath and God's judgment. You need to hear this really clear. The storm that's coming for every one of us is a storm of judgment. And the only ones who stand on that judgment day are those who have heard and acted on Jesus' teaching. Not the ones who turn up to church and say, man, that was a really good sermon, and then go and live however they like.
2: Their own Lord, their own sovereign, they do not stand. The only ones
1: who stand in God's judgment are those who hear and act. Jesus has in his mind very, very clearly the prophet Isaiah when he says this. This whole illustration that we know so well has its roots in the old covenant. Jesus knows it back to front. He's told us in this sermon that he is the fulfillment of the old covenant. None of the Old Testament is going to be done away with. And he has in mind this passage from Isaiah 28. Where the prophet says, Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And all through the New Testament, this is one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And throughout the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament keep saying that thing that Isaiah said, he was writing about Jesus. That stone, that precious cornerstone,
2: that foundation stone, that is the Messiah. That is the Lord Jesus. Isaiah goes on. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level.
1: Hail will sweep away the false refuge. And water will flood your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be dissolved and your agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. Every time it passes through, it will carry you away. It will pass through every morning, every day and every night. Only terror will cause you to understand the message. Indeed, the bed is too short to stretch out on. The cover is too small to wrap up in. For the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perezim. He will rise in wrath as at the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his unexpected work, and to perform his task, his unfamiliar task. So now, do not scoff or your shackles will become stronger. Indeed, I have heard from the Lord God of armies a decree of destruction for the whole land. This is what Jesus has in mind. This is the storm that Jesus sees coming, and it's coming for every one of us. It's a storm of judgment. It's coming on the last day, and God will come in righteous judgment. That is, he will be absolutely fair in all of his judgments. Either to grant life or to mete out destruction. And Jesus says it absolutely is vital and eternally significant that you enter in the narrow gate, follow the difficult and narrow road,
2: and find yourself living on the rock.
3: Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We have been in this sermon series,
1: we have been challenged, we've been convicted, maybe even astonished by Jesus' words. But if that's all we have been, then we have
2: gained nothing. Nothing. And our path is wide and easy and leads to destruction. If this has been an exercise in Jesus' appreciation, then we've gained nothing. And our very soul is in
1: grave danger of eternal destruction. it is possible to hear Jesus' words and then go away and build your life on the sand of self-righteousness, the sand of self-gratification and self-aggrandizement and self-fulfillment. It is possible to do that. Maybe that's what's going on in these last two verses. When Jesus had finished these teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. They're astonished, but
2: did they do anything with it? That's the question that Matthew leaves lingering in our minds. Who are you going
3: to be? Who am I going to be? One thing that this passage makes clear
1: is that you can be the one who is imploring others to build their house on the rock and then go and build it on the sand yourself. All of us need to be confronted
3: with this reality.
2: Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine And acts on them will be
1: like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Pounded it with the judgment, the righteous, just judgment of God.
2: Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. I know we're we're over time. But there is no more important message. We must come to terms with
1: this reality. Two paths, two
3: foundations, two ways to live, two lords. My appeals to you are powerless. I have no moral authority to tell you how to live. All I can do is
1: try and shine a light on Jesus' words and, 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 and beg you, if these Appear to you to be the words of a good and gracious, compassionate and loving God, then
2: hear them. Please hear them now and act on them now. Now is the time.
3: For those of us who have
1: been spending our days enjoying the freedom. And the ease of the wide path that leads to destruction. Now
3: is the time to leave that path.
2: To recognize your poverty of spirit, to recognize your
1: weakness as a sheep, and then to look to the Good Shepherd who is leading you to life. This is the gospel. God loved the world. In this way, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but will have life, eternal life.
2: Hear and receive the good news of the gospel. And then come. Please come forward.
1: We're going to sing a a few songs now to give you the opportunity either to stand on the rock and rejoice in the knowledge you have of your Savior. Delight in the fact that he has called you to live a righteous life following him in his ways. Or to recognize that you are way off course and in desperate danger of destruction. And so run, run to the shepherd, run to the narrow door. You can do that right where you are, or you can come down here. There'll be a couple of us who just want to pray with you to the door. Pray with you, asking, seeking, knocking, knowing that that narrow gate will always be open to those who desire Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these last 20 weeks. The sermon has been convicting and impressive, astonishing even, but it's so much more than that. I pray that it would be a call from your mouth to us now to hear, to act, to respond with faith, to respond with daily faithfulness. Lord God, please keep us safe in your kingdom. Please persevere us on the narrow path. Please help us to enable one another as we walk, as we stumble, as we run together. Please enable us to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to be on our guard against those wolves who would seek to consume us. Lord, please keep us safe and secure
3: in your kingdom.